For today's show, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Sarah Wobker. Dr. Wobker is an assistant professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She completed her medical training and additionally a master's in public health at UNC and also her residency in anatomic and clinical pathology where we were co-residents. Dr. Wobker additionally sought subspecialty training in cyto and genitourinary pathology. Today, I welcome Dr. Wobker not only to gain her perspective on the unfolding crisis in a town I used to call home, but also to discuss how having training in both pathology and public health influences her interpretation of these events. So welcome, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk with you today. It's kind of funny to think that our voices are going out into the world. I don't really know that anyone's listening, but it's still kind of fun. It's great. I think it's such a good idea. It is. It's, uh, um, you know, pathology is a small community, but um, already I've seen some people interested. So I think this is great. And I'm happy even if one person is listening. So I always start the show with a brief summary of the news headlines from today, which um, as a general rule for my mental health, I try not to consume in the volumes that I used to. But uh, anyway, here we go. As of 7 p.m. today, when I last checked, there were nearly 2 million confirmed cases of the novel coronavirus worldwide, with approximately 579,000 cases in the United States, which long since has claimed the title of world leader in the number of cases. And in honor of my guest, I checked North Carolina's case count, and it is 4,815, and Rhode Island is 2,976. Nationwide, approximately 23,477 deaths have been attributed to this disease. And a brief summary of the latest headlines here in the United States underscores the piecemeal approach of the American response. The Washington Post headlines included a story about how a consortium of governors from the Northwest and the Northeast plan to collectively reach an agreement about when to lift social distancing measures in the lack of federal guidance. Additionally, the White House is denying claims that the president was considering firing Dr. Tony Fauci, who has been a noted member and spokesperson for the Coronavirus Task Force, which takes us right into public health, which is what we're going to talk about today, how it relates to the current pandemic and how the perception of this field might change going forward. But first, we're going to start with some general questions about the pandemic and how things are going in Chapel Hill. So, Sarah... Dr. Wabker, tell us a little bit or a lot, however much you want to, about your background and how you came to work where you do. Sure. Um, I agree. Excellent segue uh, with Dr. Fauci's uh, uh, lead in there. So I'm from North Carolina. I was raised here and I came through the public school system in North Carolina and um, went away for college, but otherwise have been here. And when it came time for me to look at medical schools, uh, UNC was really kind of the only place that I considered largely due to in-state tuition and the fact that it was an excellent school. You're here. Um, yeah. So nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a win-win. And I moved to Chapel Hill in 2003 um, and have been there ever since, with the exception of one year that I spent in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins. Um, mm-hmm. So I love the place for one, and it is home. But I also am really proud to work at UNC. I think it's a really top class institution. And I think we have a really 
collaborative and um, just generally uh, benign and wonderful group of people across schools. You know, it's, mm-hmm. um, we'll talk about public health coming up, but, you know, I think the School of Medicine, the School of Public Health interact a lot and um, it's just a really nice uh, environment to, to work in. And there's a lot of really brilliant people here. And I think that, um, you know, it's just nice to be surrounded by people who are really passionate about their work and have these like amazing uh, areas of expertise. And, and it's just like a really, really great place to, to work. And particularly as a junior yeah. person, it's, it's very supportive. So that's great. Um, yeah. Yeah. I never yeah. want to leave. Oh, well, I, I miss Chapel Hill every day. I will say the thing that I've noticed since I'm not there and every place is different and has its strengths that when you come up there as a resident, you take some things for granted, like the fact that you, that UNC does almost everything, you know, they do pediatric, they do perinatal, they do transplant, they do all the subspecialties. And so as a resident, you see almost everything, you know, and then when you go out into the world and you hear, you know, oh, I trained here, but I never saw this. And I trained there, but I never saw that. I, there wasn't much, I mean, looking back that I didn't do, I'm not saying that I could sign out a long transplant biopsy now, but at least I've done it before. You know what I mean? Like it, you see almost everything there. It's, I think it's yeah, because I, it's more of like a centralized system. It's really a great place. Yeah. I always like to point out to folks who are coming to interview for residency that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of places where the children's hospital is on one side of town and Mm -hmm. the VA hospital where they do all the prostates is on another part of town. And ours Mm -hmm. are all literally connected by one hall. So it's like you're walking from the children's hospital to the cancer hospital. And 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 by walking across the hall. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in one place. So I think that's great. It is great. I do. I miss North Carolina, especially this time of year. So it's like before it gets oppressively hot. It's right. really great. It's really There's great. There's a small window. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So um, now we'll move on to specifically COVID-19. When is the first time you remember hearing about it and where did you hear about it? And do you remember how you felt at the time? So it, the first uh, kind of remembrance is very vague and it's reading the New York Times, which I at least scan every day. And seeing, you know, stories coming out from Wuhan and and kind of early on it not seeming terrifying, but a little bit concerning. Um, So that was probably, you know, mid-January that I was, it was somewhat on my radar. But I think I felt like, oh, this is kind of another SARS, another MERS, which were no laughing matter, but they weren't this like they didn't hit me so close to home and something Mm -hmm. that's like drastically changed my life so um yeah I think it was just that like early awareness of it uh being you know oh you know feeling like I needed to follow it but not being terrified Mm -hmm. and I think I felt early on that it was likely that it would just be geographically isolated um Mm -hmm. and also just not having enough data early on. I mean, we mm. didn't, we didn't get a lot of straightforward information yeah. from China early on. And, yeah. and so I think I just sort of reserved judgment until I could get more yeah. information. That's true. Um, so today's Monday, April 13th. 
how has your opinion changed since then? And did you have one moment where you were sort of stopped in your tracks and felt like your opinion like changed in a moment or was it a, like a, like a gradual thing or how did that, I assume your opinion has changed. So how yeah. did that happen? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I think again, going back to the data part of it, I really wanted to just get more facts and, um, I think the analogy that came to mind is uh, when you think about kind of consulting people in pathology and you talk about someone who's like more of a benign pathologist or someone who's a malignant pathologist and you want to ask somebody who's going to support kind of what you're leaning towards. (laughs) I was leaning towards this being benign early on. I was like, no, I mean, I think probably this, like I said, it's going to be geographically isolated you know, it's, it's not going to be highly fatal and highly transmissible. That doesn't happen that often. And so I was looking <laughs> Sorry, for it's this. funny. It's just like you were, you were shopping around for reassurance, basically, I right? Was, yeah, yeah. I was looking for those pieces of data that were going to make me feel better. And yeah. um, I wasn't finding them. Uh, and then I think the kind of light bulb moment, partly because of my own, um, the Diamond Princess cruise situation right. was, I just remember reading that story and I can't remember if my partner was either actually here or I like called him on the phone, but mm-hmm. I said, you have to read this. This is my worst nightmare. Like I'm an mm-hmm. introvert. I'm a little bit claustrophobic and <laughs> I could be stuck on a boat with a thousand plus people with some mystery illness that we don't know how it's spread. We don't know like who's carrying it. I mean, it, that was so terrifying to me. And so it, by mm-hmm. that point, I just had to read everything compulsively yeah. about it. Cause I, yeah. I just was so blown away yeah. that this was happening. And I just had this like horrible feeling that that virus was just going to burn itself out on that boat. And it just seemed it was just a total horror story. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I felt similarly. It's funny you say that because um, I had a, another guest on who was talking about how his wife wanted to go on a cruise and she loved cruises. And I'm someone who would never want to go on a cruise because I kind of get seasick. Plus, like the after that norovirus outbreak, I think it was maybe like even 10 years ago now. I don't remember. But I'm, I just like I associate cruises with transmissible diseases now so right. when that happened I just thought like oh my goodness I I totally agree that's so yeah. funny yeah so <laughs> I started taking the, it yes yeah. yeah, so that was before, that was like at the end of February wasn't it yeah wasn't it before Which, March yeah you know so that was happening and then as you know our big pathology conference started yeah. right then and so and I think I was texting you or you text yeah I, I yeah, and I told I didn't go. So, yeah, but you did, right? You did. <laughs> I was too scared. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's one of those things again where that ship was in Japan. You know, I, I was yeah. not really feeling it on you know our local level. So you know, right. I go to this conference that's full of people. You know, the Chinese Pathology Society did not attend, which is... Did not attend, but there were people there from Italy and there were people there from other countries where we knew that there were outbreaks. I mean, I remember talking to someone before USCAP and this person was not a pathologist. She was like a research person in the hospital and she was talking to me about how she just got back from Africa. And I said, oh my gosh, how did the airports feel? 
And she said, oh, I wore a mask. It was fine. And I said, I remember saying to her, I, rem- I saw them interviewing tourists in Northern Italy. And it was, you know, the end of February. And everyone was like, oh, it's no big deal. We're just washing our hands. And now, you know, like three weeks after that, it was like terrible, you know? Yeah. So I, I kind of feel like time after time, we just keep hearing stories about people saying it's going to be fine. And then it's not fine. And it just right. amazes me how that keeps happening like, well, within the was- same the difference of a week, you know, if if that conference had been for me, you know, your threshold was different, but if that conference for me had been a week later, I think at that point I would have said, no way I'm not going. Um, Yeah. But you know, and and most people did go. I'm one of the only people I know that didn't. And the reason I didn't is because I have an underlying medical condition, but also when they found that woman in California who just showed up to the hospital with COVID so bad she had to be intubated and she had no known contacts. That was like three days before I was supposed to leave. I was packed. Like my suitcases were packed and I was like, I can't do this. Like, we don't know what's going on. I am too nervous of a person, but I totally understand most people went and they were fine. Although I did hear funny stories about um, some friends of mine who said that they refused to go to large meetings and didn't touch anyone the whole time they were there. <laughs> like they, they wouldn't shake hands or hug, which is Yeah. Funny. So there were signs everywhere saying yeah. like, don't shake. I think oh, it said good. like, keep good. calm and don't shake. Or, I mean, uh, yeah. Like, like a no little bit of a, yeah, a weak yeah. uh, messaging there. But um, yeah. no, I mean, I think actually people were fairly normal. I didn't see a lot of masks on. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It was more or less business as usual. And then, mm-hmm. So I ended up staying an additional week in California uh-huh. as a vacation. Uh-huh. Oh, and wow. right as I get back, or maybe even as I was like flying out is when the Biogen conference hit the news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, that was right in my backyard. Yeah. That was yeah. Uh, close to Rhode Island. Yeah. That was, yeah. So it just, you know, was, was bad timing as I'm sitting there, you know, after being around all these thousands of people and getting oh, on a plane. Sure. And, yeah. <laughs> Especially uh, since I, I don't know this for sure, so I shouldn't say it, but I think maybe at least some of the people who were at that conference were not from the States. So they, it, it also involved international travel. So I'm really glad yeah. I haven't heard anything bad about people getting sick. So I hope that stays that way. Me either. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So, um, how has how has your job changed during this time? Have your caseloads changed? And what about interactions with other pathologists and other healthcare practitioners? And has the use of PPE at work changed? Have your sort of practice habits changed? Um, so because of that conference and the vacation, I kind of miss the initial um, you know, frantic, how, what are we going to do? How are we going to make sure residents are safe and the faculty are safe? Uh, so I was sitting at home when that was happening, which I think is for the best, but (laughs) by the time I got back, uh, on service, we had community spread in North Carolina, you know, it was, it was a real deal. So by that point, there was no face-to-face sign out with the residents. Um, Basically, Mm -hmm. I would let them preview, I would take the case, sign it out, put a bunch of dots and and notes on the report and give it back Mm -hmm. to them to try and have some semblance of, you know, Mm -hmm. an educational value to it. Um, Mm -hmm. Zoom lectures. And that's still ongoing, as you can imagine. Um, And I think is okay. I can't, go on forever. I, I, that's an entire, you should find a whole nother person to talk about that for 
a future episode. This has been like a, a recurring theme. People are saying everything's happening digitally and it's, it's, uh, I think at least some of it might be here to stay. It's really hard to tell how much of it will stick, you know? Yeah. And I think yeah. honestly, we're definitely learning what the value is and, and how mm-hmm. many really positive things can come out of it. But you know, that there are things in training you just can't learn without doing. So, well, I think, uh, I think if I had to pick one thing that I wouldn't want to give up in pathology, it would be double-headed scope sign out. If I had to give up lectures in person, I would, but I don't think you can learn the same amount of detail or something. There's something about that closeness and, you know, at, at UNC, at least we had a lot of one-on-one sign out just with an attending and a resident, which, cause we didn't have that many fellows, you know? So right. I think that is very valuable. And I, I know, I understand that's not safe to do that right now, but that was, that's one thing that I hope comes back. So. Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. Maybe we can get those sneeze guards up like they have at the grocery store. I saw a picture on social media of a woman who had just taken like a plastic, it looked like something you like put cereal in in your cabinet and she just had it over top of her head. So do something like that. I don't know. But, um, um, so does everyone wearing masks at the hospital? Because we're doing yeah. universal masking in Rhode Island now. Like if, if you go pick up food, you have to have a mask on. If, if I walk my kids outside, I'm supposed to like put a mask on. So I assume at the hospital, everyone. So the hospital for sure. Yes. They yeah. started issuing us our, our one, one per week mask oh, okay. as of last week. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'll say I've seen people who are less adherent to it than I would like, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but we have them mm-hmm. um, obviously not in abundant quantities or we wouldn't right. be reusing them for a week but yeah. we do have them mm-hmm. uh so yeah so we're all wearing masks during work and they did um cancel all elective mm-hmm. surgeries and procedures so volumes have fallen it took there's sort of this weird lag time mm-hmm. where obviously you know if they had somebody scheduled who was kind of you know questionably elective versus right semi-urgent they went ahead and did it um so we're still getting big resections but uh, biopsies have dropped off a ton yeah yeah that seems to be another common theme um it seems like the big cases are sticking around most places that i've heard of at least like a lot of the oncology kind of stuff is still going on so i was kind of um, thinking i mean it almost makes sense to try and get those done and out of the way mm -hmm. So that you don't have something truly emergent, you know, a perforation exactly. or something bad. So I get mm-hmm. that. It makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, you can make an argument that that is an emergency. So, um, and then uh, in terms of your interactions with other healthcare providers, what are you hearing from them? How are they handling it? Are you, I assume you're still doing frozen sections occurring, occasionally and interacting with clinicians that I would assume virtual tumor boards at this point, but are you getting any feedback from, from them? So I will say I have not heard a ton. Um, Mm -hmm. I sort of had early discussions with people when it was really unclear what the health system was going to do. So, you know, as a GU pathologist, I have a lot of friends who are urologists and asking them, you know, what they thought was going to happen in terms of surgeries and volumes, because, you know, I don't, I don't run our division by any stretch, but, you know, I wanted to 
be able to provide some data like, hey, you know, surgeries are planning to go down to, you know, 20% volume or something uh, for at least my service. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we should seriously consider, you know, staggering, you know, workforce and maybe Mm -hmm. GU cases only get signed out every other day or, you know, things like Mm -hmm. that. So when I was talking to people in that regard, I think the impression I mostly got was everybody's in, you know, kind of in their like start at the like starting blocks crouch, you know, like we're Mm -hmm. ready, but we don't really have a plan or, you know, we're not, it hasn't hit here in Mm. a way that you can just like start attacking it. Um, Uh So it's just Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, trying to be ahead of it and, and think about all the things we can do and um, just kind of a wait before the storm kind of stuff. Yeah. 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 Kind of a weird feeling for sure. Um, So uh, predicting outcomes, um, especially in this environment is, is not great always, but do you think the practice of medicine will change after this? Um, how do you think that might happen? Um, yeah, I think that's a huge question. And I think that I'm a bit of a pessimist, a lot of a pessimist. Um, and the problem with medicine is that you know, so many things aren't driven by what is like rational for providing healthcare. They're driven by the insurance companies and administrative policies and ways to get reimbursed at, you know, maximal levels and and things like that, where, you know, it doesn't necessarily make the most sense in terms of just the daily delivery of healthcare. Um, So, I don't know. I mean, it's almost like it has to be so broken that it's built up from the ground up again. And I don't, I don't know that I want to see that happen either. Um, But I'm not sure. I don't know if we're going to get substantial change out of this. Um, Yeah. It will be really interesting to see, especially, I mean, the fact that this is happening during an election year and that you kind of see these political commentator types just sort of like stunned. They don't know what to say, you know, this is totally unprecedented. So, yeah. I would like to see, you know, this is like kind of a great case study for, Mm -hmm. you know, like a health policy person who can really think up how best to approach this issue. I hate that it's happening in real life, but, um, you know, this could potentially be a good catalyst for change if somebody mm-hmm. is willing to put in the the effort to think through all of the yeah all the parts and when people and when people over when we're all like semi hysterical which will be a challenge True. I think yeah um, <laughs> so has this situation affected you personally like outside of work you can comment on as personal as you want to make that or do you feel increased stressed and if so how are you coping with it. Sure. I mean, absolutely. I am more stressed. I, you know, my baseline is I'm a pretty stoic and emotionally reserved person. And I do internalize most of my emotions. But, um, you know, I think it's been, I, again, not necessarily the most like optimistic, you know, sunny side type of person, but it has been helpful for me to try and get involved in like any sort of 
busy work or volunteerism or something that I can do that makes me feel like I'm contributing, which has Mm -hmm. been particularly important since I've been off service a lot. It's hard to stay out of the hospital, but I think it's the right thing to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to be healthy if things really do get dire and they need me to help. So, um, I mean, I think the stress has come from how best to support, you know, my, my life partner, my like neighbors, my family, you Mm -hmm. know, what I can do because just sitting back is, is really difficult. And I think, you know, most people who go into medicine are doers and it's really hard to kind of tell someone like that to, to not come into work and not do things. Um, Yeah. And to just, just basically, uh, stay away, (laughs) stay away and be quiet. And somebody just fell in my office. Everything's okay. I don't know what it was. It was a box of tissues or something. Okay. Well, that's good to hear that you're volunteering. Yeah. I mean, nice. I exercise a lot. Uh, yeah. Weather. That's been a big plus. If this is going to happen, it's nice that it's like you said, Chapel Hill is beautiful in the spring. Um, yeah, Yeah. So, um, a lot of learning to bake various things. Isn't that funny that yeah. I have been baking like a crazy person? Like yeah. I'll, I'll just look at the clock and I'm like, oh, we have 45 minutes before dinner. Let's make cookies. And my husband's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. going to make more cookies. <laughs> and we yeah. don't need more. We're going to do it. Yeah. It's uh, I don't know. They say that sugar and eggs are hard to find right now. I think everyone is just craving like comfort foods. So oh, flour um, is like completely out. We can't find it. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Well, hopefully the flower people will figure figure out that there's a demand and uh, step it up, I guess. I don't know. There's probably a warehouse full of flowers yeah. someplace. Um, so uh, to put it hard now, we're going to talk to or we're going to talk about public health. Um, and I'll just uh, segue. I have a little bit of stuff to say here and then we're going to kick it back to Sarah for her expertise in this area. But I will admit first um, and upfront that my um, main thoughts about public health. When I heard public health, I would think of the public, sort of the public health, like the public department. So the health department and my main interaction with them was reporting communicable diseases. So as a clinical pathologist, there are certain diseases that you have to report to them. Um, but uh, since I was doing this show with you and I wanted to talk with you about public health, I started doing research and I went down a rabbit hole, which was very enjoyable. I found an article from 1920 by a man named Charles Winslow, who was a physician and a pioneer of the field of public health. And um, in this article from 1920, he says, and bear with me, this is kind of long, but it is very interesting. He says, to a large section of the public, I fear that the health authorities are still best known as the people to whom one complains of undecent accumulations of rubbish in the backyard of a neighbor, accumulations which possess those offensive characteristics which somehow can only originate in a neighbor's yard and never in one's own. So he was a comedian. And then he goes on to say, (laughs) he defines public health in a way which I think still makes sense today as the science and art of preventing disease, prolonging life, and promoting physical health and efficiency through organized community efforts for the sanitation of the environment, the control of community infections, the education of the individual in principles of personal hygiene, the organization of medical and nursing service for the early diagnosis and preventative treatment of disease, and the development of the social machinery, which will ensure to every individual in the community a standard of living adequate for the maintenance of health. 
And all I have to say is, Dr. Winslow, our nation turns its lonely eyes to you. Why aren't you here now? <laughs> um, and the CDC definition, a century later, I won't read out loud, but it's basically the same thing. It's just a little bit shorter. So um, I've talked before about how everyone I know is thirsty for information. And many are looking to people, to physicians and scientists like Dr. Anthony Fauci for facts and information. By the way, did you know he's 79 years old? He apparently he runs like six miles a day. Okay. Well, he, I mean, not just like the fact that he's fit looking, but like, I don't, he doesn't, his fate, like, he just looks great. He's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I feel like w when this all clears up, I want to, I want someone to write a book about <laughs> his, his routines just because I want to follow them. It probably does not involve eating cookies though. So probably not. Anyway, no. So we look to people like, like him and, um, above all, what we want is a path back out of this life altering fear-inducing time that we're living through. So uh, Dr. Wabker, as someone who has actually formally studied public health, how did I do so far? And do you feel like I missed something that sort of hits your definition of public health? No, I, I think that's a really great quote that you pulled out. And I read it and then like re-read it as you were going okay. over it. And um, one thing I noticed is the fact that he includes, um, let's see, the Organization of Medical and Nursing Service for the Early Diagnosis and Preventive Treatment of Disease. So he's talking about prevention in yeah. 1920. And I looked yeah. this up because I was like, oh, I remember this like little factoid. Even though the CDC is referred to as the CDC, that's the proper abbreviation, it's the Centers for Disease mm -hmm. Control and Prevention. But oh, they didn't yeah. add... Yeah. yeah, but they did not add, I looked up the date, they did not add the P until 1992. Oh, for heaven's sake. Yeah. So, I mean, the the way that public health was conceived and, you know, the CDC being kind of the, the stalwart, you know, everybody looked to them, you know, really didn't put the emphasis on prevention until 1992. Um, and I think, you know, when you ask, like, what is my definition of it? And what do I think of when I think about public health? I mean, I think it's, it really is about population level, um, you know, systems based approaches to improving health. And, mm -hmm. and so much of that is health behavior and, you know, preventive effort, some of which is medicine, right. some of which isn't. Um, that that you really you're missing a huge part of it. You don't think about it coming from that point of view. Yeah, and that kind of goes back to the the point you were making earlier about healthcare in the United States. And I mean, I I'm not an expert in this field, but I know some who criticize the way that healthcare is set up in the United States is that we are sort of reactionary. We treat disease. We don't work quite so much in terms of effort. Um, at prevention of disease and how uh, that's sort of the micro level, but you can also extrapolate that to the macro level that at a population base, we're also not concentrating quite as hard on the P, you know, on the right. prevention. So that it's interesting how that buttonholes. I didn't think about that. So you ended up as a pathologist signing out genitourinary pathology and cytopathology. But at some point along the way, you decided to get a public health uh, master's. So how did that, was it between medical school and residency or was it before, or how did you make that decision? 
What did it, what called yeah. out to you about public health? This is such a nonlinear way to get <laughs> to pathology. And uh-huh. I don't think there's any way to go through it. That's not a little bit rambling, but okay. I'm going to try. So okay. um, I went to Emory for undergrad, which is in Atlanta. It's on the same street uh, as the CDC. Uh, I mean, I saw the okay, CDC okay. every day. And Which I will now in my head call the CDC and P. <laughs> yeah. Because, um, you, know, yeah. I, you know, like I said, it's still yeah. technically appropriate to call it the CDC. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's just sort of uh, a little bit of this like ever present thing. And I, I wanted to go to medical school. I did my pre-med stuff, but I also, it's a liberal arts college. So I stumbled into a degree in religion and anthropology. Hmm. And what I was particularly interested in, like at the very micro level is Tibetan Buddhism and how their medical beliefs and their religious beliefs are kind of um, totally like synonymous in many ways. And you can't really separate one from the other. And I just started being really interested in, you know, sort of the cultural aspects of medicine Mm-hmm. what it takes to, um, you know, what sort of belief system you have to have to trust your caregivers and, you know, why we buy into certain things. And, you know, I was looking at it academically from an Eastern perspective, but certainly there's the same concepts in Western medicine in terms of healers and placebo and, and all these things. Mm-hmm. So I went down you know, a very deep rabbit hole in college and was actually thinking about doing medical anthropology um, as a PhD when I graduated. I took a couple of years off and realized that I kind of wanted to do something a little more practical and tangible. So mm-hmm. ultimately did go to med school. And even though UNC was, you know, in state and, and my first choice, it also had, I knew Part of what made it a good option for me was it had an excellent school of public health. So mm-hmm. they also do, um, you can take a year between your third and fourth year and get your MPH um, oh. in basically one How calendar How lovely, year. just one year. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And it's a fantastic program targeted to physicians. So, you know, you're, you're basically every core class is directed towards this is how you would apply it to the medical literature and you know it's it's really a fantastic program Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. I did it and I learned so much but ultimately I you know kind of stumbled also into pathology thinking Mm -hmm. that um, it was I was doing cancer research and thought that would be a good match for kind of my research interests and ultimately decided that I just liked signing out pathology and I still do some research, but um, it was just kind of a nice dovetail. And so I would say on a daily basis, I don't necessarily consciously call on my public health degree, but I also think it frames a lot of the way I think about um, the way we practice medicine and and that sort of thing. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, So now as someone, you know, like you have some expertise in public health. How weird is it to hear everyone in the country, news reporters, people who barely know what they're talking about. um, Sometimes those are the same people. Sometimes they're not talking about things like social distancing and flattening the curve. Do you feel like 
your background in public health has made this situation look different to you than maybe like the other physicians you work with and around? What about like you versus your family? Or do you find just, you just want to scream into the void? Like how, like, where are you on the spectrum? Is it, is it maddening to be someone who understands this differently to watch people sort of commenting on it or? So I think, yeah, there were a couple, you know, early on again, with the lack of information, I think I wanted to feel like I had more agency and ability to like guide people and make good decisions and things like that, that, you know, I had a little bit more of a framework again to understand some of these things, but, you know, with the lack of, of information, it it just didn't really um, pan out that way. But, you know, there were things I thought I could explain to friends and family, you know, early Mm -hmm. on when there was just no testing available. I was like, we don't know the gravity of the situation. The testing that's happening is happening yeah. in a very weird, very narrow, yeah, <laughs> very narrow. Yeah, and, yeah, you know, we didn't really know what the denominator was, and uh-huh. you know, it's uh-huh. you know, we're just getting these very small pieces of information that don't give us a whole picture. It's like the puzzle and we have like the left corner and the right bottom corner and nothing. And a, possibly a blindfold on, like yeah. you're trying yeah. to basically work a puzzle in the dark. I mean, it's yeah. like you can't see what's happening. Yeah. Right. And there's just, yeah. there's not, you know, if, if I can't put it together, how am I going to translate it to, to yeah. you know, someone who doesn't have a lot of medical background? But I think the yeah. other thing early on, I remember um, talking to people about, you know, the idea, and you see this a lot that like, it will be great if we're overreacting, like that's the best possible outcome is Mm -hmm. six months from now, people to say that was all just a waste of time. And and you shouldn't have done Mm -hmm. that. And um, the, the thing that, you know, I remember learning and remember being a really kind of novel concept to me at the time in during public health, um, during my classes was the idea of the prevention paradox, that you have mm-hmm. to apply these interventions to these huge populations in order to get just a little bit of improvement and outcomes. And so you have all these people who receive no benefit whatsoever, but you have to convince mm-hmm. those people that it's worth doing. And mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's a particularly hard thing to do. So like I listened to your first episode and talking about yeah. uh, South Korea and yeah. their cultural differences and, and yeah. the way that a country is governed that can make that a possibility. And America is yeah. not that place. <laughs> um, no, no. We just and don't, I, <laughs> we don't we, really we, do well yeah. with those sweeping measures. Well, and I, I don't think we're alone in that aspect, at least. Like I was said, I, re- I remember watching, it was like CNN or something like that, where they were interviewing all these Italian people and these tourists in Italy. And they were all saying, oh, it's going to be fine. We're just washing our hands. Everything's going to be fine. But we already knew it hadn't been fine in China, right? We knew it was bad there. But like you said, I mean, you can sort of apply all the, the what we know about the data coming out, how maybe it wasn't clean or maybe it wasn't really representative. But it just seems to me like time after time, each country thinks that won't happen here. I mean, it happened in the UK. They were sort of saying like, oh, we don't have to do all that shutting everything down. And then they did, you know, it's it's sort of, it just seems like the same story keeps being retold. So 
Right. I just wondered if from a public health person, if that, if that just made you want to open your window and just scream into the oh, I think there's there's a small part of me, you know, politics yeah. aside, that feels like yeah. the U.S. could have been a hero. Like we could have yeah. shown like how incredible our public health system is and how, you know, patriotic our citizens are and our willingness to, you know, give up some in- individual freedoms so that everybody mm-hmm. can benefit. You know, all these things where I felt like by the time it really started to hit the U.S., we had mm-hmm. enough information to know. Yeah, what and happen. it and yeah, and it still seemed to sneak up on me on most people I've talked to. So it's just maybe, maybe human brains can we just can't process this. I don't know. I'm sure people will figure that out in decades to come. <laughs> but it was a nice segue you made for me about public health. So public health funding in the United States has fallen in recent years. It's been um, it hasn't increased with funding of other things and the cost of living and all that kind of stuff. So do you feel that alongside this fact that public health was underemphasized in medical education? I mean, I spoke earlier about my my basic lack of knowledge about this. And do you think that will change going forward? Um, I was thinking in particular about, um, you know, they say, and I, I couldn't find references for this, but I swear I read once that after Watergate, a bunch of people wanted to be lawyers and apparently during this presidency and watching all of the legal tribulations of this president, the applications for law school had been going down and now they're going way up. So everyone wanted to be a lawyer. So now do you think healthcare workers and, and other people who are not healthcare workers are all going to want to be public health experts now? Uh, so I think it's probably a little less sexy than law school and like potentially <laughs> like, you know, arguing I hope there are lawyers listening and I hope they're laughing right now <laughs> constitutional law in front of Woo! Uh, the Supreme yeah. Court but real page um, turner yeah <laughs> I, I you know I think that I'm I might be somewhat biased you know one I, I did the MPH but I also thought that UNC you know it's it, it's an excellent it's like the top school of medicine for primary care. And I think Mm -hmm. a large part of primary care is public health and is understanding Mm -hmm. a lot of these more kind of social determinants of health and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, having a a much more, again, population level approach to things. So with that bias in mind, I do think that medical education needs to change in a lot of ways. Um, You know, we have to be more adaptable and, and understand that, you know, there's not a a silver bullet for everything. I mean, we're talking about now one to two years off for, for a vaccine for uh, SARS-CoV-2. Like we got to think about other things to do (laughs) to Mm -hmm. stem this pandemic in the next Mm -hmm. one to two years. Um, So some of that is drug development and things like that, but a lot of it is, you know, these public health measures and also mm-hmm. being more um, willing and and um, adaptable and able to make these changes quickly um, mm-hmm. to pivot in your practice. So to go from seeing patients in the clinic face to face to telehealth and and still mm-hmm. be able to provide good care. So some of that, I think you can learn with a curriculum, but some of it I think is almost just a cultural willingness to, to think about other ways to deliver care. 
Well, so. and the other thing that I think will be interesting, because you're talking about medical education specifically, I sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way, I taught a small group. So I saw the same and I call them kids. They're not kids. They're adults. They're like fully, some of them are probably older than I am, but they, I, I saw them every week for, or every couple of weeks for the whole fall semester. And sometimes I felt like a dinosaur, Sarah. I mean, most of their stuff is online. A lot of their classes are optional. They don't have to go to lecture because it's recorded. Many of them don't want to go because they learn better listening and taking notes and then reading the notes, you know, that they provide later. So I almost wonder, um, and this is not ageist because there were plenty of people in the class who, like I said, who were older than I am, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a frame shift, like a total mind shift of things being virtual now, which were not before. When I was in medical school, you had to sit in the seat from eight to five every day and attendance was taken and it was, it was pretty old school. So I wonder if this generation or these people coming out of medical school will be more adaptable to those kinds of things, like seeing patients virtually and not being so wed to the like in-person is the only way for everything. So. Oh, absolutely. Maybe. Yeah. I think that's a given um, yeah. and that then, yeah, add thing, on to I, it, so, yeah. they're, you know, more innovative and like entrepreneurial mindset yeah. and, and coming up mm -hmm. with different solutions to these problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it may be, yeah, I think I agree. I'm a dinosaur too. And I still want those kids to sit in their seats from eight to five and be lectured at, but <laughs> I'm uh, over that part. I, yeah. Like I said, I, I told you the other day that I made a YouTube channel and it's almost more than I can handle. But the idea of the other thing that's great is like if I give the lecture once and it doesn't substantially change the next year, they can just go listen to it. You know, like I, I could, I could make a new lecture about something else that the next year, instead of doing the same one, you know, in person over and over. I don't know. I mean, maybe there are some advantages to this. So. I think there are. Yeah. And I think, again, being forced yeah. to, to acknowledge that Literally. is good, good for, yeah. for the dinos yeah. of the world. For me. Yeah. Although I don't feel that old, but sometimes when I go to make a computer work, I feel old. So, um, and then one just last question. Uh, I, I've talked before about information overflow. I think I called it information Niagara Falls because I thought calling it a garden hose was like doing a disservice to the amount of information coming at us every day. You talked about your need. And I, I had the same thing early on in this situation to know everything that was coming out. I remember when I knew how many people in that nursing home, that, that horrible situation in outside of Seattle had happened, like I knew how many people were sick and how many people had, had succumbed. And then like how many people at that conference in Boston got sick. And then after a while, I couldn't do that anymore. Like I couldn't know that much anymore because it was impossible. Right. So um, you said you read the New York Times. Um, what do you, what else are you doing? Are you like limiting the amount of time you spend with the news? Or are you just following certain people on Twitter? What's your approach to this? Yeah, I mean, it's I I have Twitter. I've had Twitter for a long time. I would not say I have fully employed everything that Twitter has to offer until COVID. Um, and, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you know, you may feel similarly, like when you're already following a bunch of pathologists, like you're kind uh -huh. of you've already got a curated list of yeah. pretty good information. So early on, um, one of the people that I just immediately was like, oh, this guy gets it. He's saying important things that I need to know about is Andy Slavitt. Um, oh, yeah. He's, he's pretty great. Great. I, I Google him every once in a while. He's been on a couple of podcasts recently that I've gone back just to listen to because he was on 
Well, now he has his own podcast. So um, you can check that out. It's there's only like two episodes out so far, but um, he's yeah, he's great. He does like a daily end of day rundown and I find them really objective and, you know, things are happening in his brain. Mm -hmm. And then he has the the kind of you know workforce to to put things in action which is amazing um i also follow scott gottlieb uh he's the former fda head um he's also been very vocal and has a lot to say about policy um and then i found recently there's a podcast coming out of Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health called Public mm. Health on Call. Um, mm. And it's it's really cool because it does a pretty broad swath of topics, including like the pharmaceutical pipeline and you know some really interesting things kind of directly and more tangentially related to COVID. Um, so okay. I've been trying to get kind of go through the backlog of those because I just found that. And then the last one, um, I feel like I'm plugging these. I don't get any money for this. No, I'm going to put them in the show notes. If if, uh, anybody's listening and wants to give me money for it. um, Yeah, this is not a money thing. (laughs) uh, Dan Diamond writes for Politico and he he has a podcast. So I just started listening to that. It's called Pulse Check. um, And yeah, it's so far I've listened to three or four and they've all been really good. Um, He's really good. You know, did you ever listen to Diane Reem? Do you know who I'm talking about? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So she still has a show once a week and she had him on and I was like, oh, this guy is great. Anybody who she yeah. likes, I automatically right. like, but yeah, he did a fresh air as well, which is really good. Ooh, um, lovely. lovely. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's hard not to love Rose too. She's sort of everyone's idol. Exactly. Yeah. yeah so that's, that's what I try. Like I try and check those and then um, I'll just scan our local paper to see what's going on here. And that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, It doesn't. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I think the South is going to be sort of the next chapter of this story because it seems to be like most of the activity, at least so far, I know New Orleans is sort of the exception, but you know, it's like the West has had the Northeast and now we're going to kind of see, you know, as it unfolds. So, um, yeah, my old home, home state of North Carolina. Um, but I want to thank you for coming on to talk with me. It's been enlightening and fun. So I have a final segment, which I call final diagnosis, which is funny because I probably should change the name because it's a, like I talk for a paragraph and your final diagnosis has to be only a few words because we know. <laughs> are not so I don't comment. <laughs> Yeah, but this is probably my C comment <laughs> or my C comment section, but well, whatever. I'll, I'll figure it out. So, um, my I'm gonna let Sarah go for a second so I can she has time to think and I'll go first. But um, my my overall uh, sum, summary would be that public health is important. That's my top line. So my C comment would be: We are living through a demonstration of how vital public health is to all of our lives. Um, also, in his address, Dr. Winslow, who I mentioned earlier, wrote for quite some length about tuberculosis, which I thought was interesting. Um, it was one of the primary challenges faced in, in the public health domain. And it showed me that although many of his thoughts are still true today, his paper is a century old and the actual concerns had different names. But when a disease like tuberculosis is all around, 
um, folks a century ago had had to pay attention to public health measures to control the disease that was not easily cured. And so now we find ourselves in a similar situation where we're living through basically a crash course in public health that maybe people a century ago would have been more receptive to. Um, we have people with universal masking now, um, social distancing, even though it's causing economic distress. And all I can say is I hope you know, like we mentioned before, I hope we're, I hope we learn this lesson in time for this not to be as bad as sort of, I thought it was going to be at the beginning. So what do you think, Sarah? Uh, I agree with all of that. I agree with your diagnosis. Um, yeah. thank you. Thank you for this interesting case. <laughs> I have reviewed this as Dr. Walker. These are a lot of inside pathology jokes. I'm so sorry. My husband is going to tease me mercilessly about this. Uh, well, yeah. So I, I think maybe I would go with the top line of listen to the experts and, uh, um, the, a successful approach to the pandemic is going to require so many different people from so many different educational and professional backgrounds, um, that we really need to be willing to kind of let people step into where, they belong. And this isn't a purely political thing. This isn't a purely medical thing. Um, Just to really understand how many things are interconnected and dependent on other um, areas that we may not kind of see as the primary um, area of interest. And uh, just, you know, listen to those experts, uh, find the resources we need. I think that's, again, a big thing I take away from Andy Slavitt is just like, mm-hmm. find the resources, get them to the people who need them. Um, mm-hmm. And just on a local level, like continue to take care of the people around you. And that may mean staying at home, even when you feel like, weird about staying at home, just yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah, even when you feel like you're climbing the walls, it's all... Yeah the best. Well, Sarah, this was really fun. Thank you for talking to me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. It was great. Yeah. Have a good night. See ya. All right, you too. Bye.